Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Army Real Talk, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show. As soon as we landed on the ground, we kept everything with the end in mind. What did we want everything to look like whenever we departed Afghanistan? And that drove everything that we did. The first 96 hours were the most important 96 hours for us to accomplish what ultimately General McKenzie tasked us to do. I'm Colonel Retired Scott Halstead, the director of AUSA's Center of Leadership. And I'm Gina Cavallaro, the senior staff writer for Army Magazine. As our listeners heard in that soundbite and in the first episode of this three-part podcast series, Major General Chris Donahue, who commands the 82nd Airborne Division, hit the ground running when he landed in Afghanistan. He knew he had to set the conditions in the first 96 hours of operations so that they could help evacuate what ended up being more than 124,000 people from Afghanistan. It was the end of military operations, and it was August 2021. In this episode... You'll hear from two leaders with the 2nd Battalion, 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment, Sergeant First Class Jeremy Brown, a platoon sergeant from Bravo Company, and Captain Kyle Hawks, who commands Delta Company. They'll describe how it was when they arrived at the airport and what some of their experiences were operationally there and also with the people. Yeah, Gina, so Sergeant First Class Brown was on the first C-17 from the 82nd Airborne Division to land in Kabul. He was also the only member of his platoon that had previously served in Afghanistan. And he describes how eerily quiet it was when he landed in the middle of the night, but all that would change when the sun came up. For Captain Hawks, this was his first deployment. And he describes some of the challenges of deploying from Fort Bragg and then the rapidly changing security conditions on the ground, especially as desperate Afghans rushed across the tarmac at the airfield. Yeah, those details were especially harrowing. It was amazing to hear them tell them first person. So let's have a listen. What was it like on the ground? Sergeant Brown, tell us how you prepared your soldiers for this mission. Well, I mean, this mission just sort of fell into our laps. I mean, we as a brigade kind of heard some rumors and some mumblings. And I mean, watching the news, you can kind of tell things are kind of turning south in Afghanistan. And there's a distinct possibility that we may have to go forward and assist in some way in that. But In terms of training and preparation for it, there wasn't really any regimented way of preparing for Afghanistan in particular. So I kind of leaned forward a little bit on it and kind of talked to my soldiers about some Afghan culture and things like that, just experiences that I'd had in that country before, just to prepare them for it. But really, there was no way to prepare for this particular mission set. What were your experiences before? Can you talk about that? Well, I was in Afghanistan roughly about nine years prior to this deployment between 2011 and 2012. I was operating out of a small company-sized combat outpost, just conducting operations kind of in search of the Taliban, trying to prevent their movements and sort of disrupt everything that they were trying to do. Really, this was as far a cry from that as I think I could possibly imagine. Why? I know it was a different type of mission, mm-hmm. but did you have a lot of contact with Afghan people on that previous deployment as close as you did on this one? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of what I would picture your more traditional Afghan deployments being like. There's a lot of going out and visiting villages and little hamlets and things like that, conducting key leader engagements with village elders and things of that nature, just trying to 
sort of sort out where the Taliban are and just trying to prevent them from operating in the area we worked in. This, on the other hand, was more about just sort of trying to get out as cleanly as we could and help the Afghan people out as much as we could with the limited amount of time we were given. But take me there with you on this mission. What was the airfield like when you stepped off the plane with your soldiers? What did you see? Well, what did it smell like? <laughs> I mean, it smelled like Afghanistan. If your <laughs> listeners have ever been there, they'll know. Um, a little dusty. Yeah, a little mix of everything. But I was on the first aircraft from the brigade that actually landed there at HKI, and we really didn't have a very good idea of sort of what we were walking into. We had a rough common operating picture of where we might be holding up at and sort of what the situation on the ground was very tentatively but nothing really definitive that we can action on. So sort of as the ramp lowered on that aircraft, it was anyone's guess as to what was going to be waiting for us on the outside. Ultimately, though, we stepped off of that aircraft, and I just distinctly remember looking around and seeing tracers burning through the sky everywhere you looked in the city of Kabul. So it was pretty evident right away that the situation in Afghanistan was turning. Wow. And where did you go? Did you go to a perimeter? I mean, did you have orders to go to a particular place, or did you just choose a place to go to? In the little bit of planning we were able to do in the air on the way, we sort of identified a compound on the airfield that we were going to fall in on. I guess it's a prior American compound. I'm not exactly sure who occupied it before us, but it was pretty evident it was an American compound or some sort of coalition force owned it. And it was reminiscent of a lot of combat outposts or even forward operating bases that I'd seen before. It sort of had the same level of infrastructure. A lot of the same sort of force protection measures and things were in place. So we sort of fell in on one of those, but the most striking thing about it was when we got there, there was almost no one there. The streets were barren. There was trash blowing in the wind. It was something out of a horror film almost. Wow. And were a lot of your soldiers, did they also have previous deployments? I think in my platoon, I was the only one who'd been to Afghanistan before. And a few of my soldiers had been on our previous deployment to Iraq. But really, the experience level in the Middle East was pretty limited. And yeah, they had genuinely no idea what to expect out of Afghanistan. How did they do? They did really well. Very pleased with the performance I got at home. What about you, Captain? What was your experience? It Were you was, guys together uh, on the getting off the plane? Or? No, ma'am. No. Uh, so my company landed about eight hours, I think, after Sergeant Brown's left. We got there the morning of the 16th, right as the sun was coming up. And the last we'd heard before we left Charleston was that, hey, we're going to be, you know, initial security around the airfield. And then we got a quick rules of engagement brief. It was very bare bones. Hey, you have the right to self-defense. That's about it. And then that was all we'd heard before we landed. And so we got off the plane and there was a really nice Irish gentleman there that was working to download equipment. That was a civilian that just worked on the airfield. And that was it. <laughs> and, there was, oh, wow. and so it was a, hey, like, okay. Uh, so I, I put the company into a security position. I was like, let's go try and find an American and figure out what, what's going on. The State Department was still evacuating people around that time. And about that time, one of our, our first sergeants in the, in the battalion rolled up in a truck that he'd taken from the airfield. And uh, he gave me a ride to link up with the battalion in that American compound. And our mission set changed a couple of times upon you know, arrival. At first it was, hey, we need you to get to the south and reinforce one of the other companies on perimeter security. And then it was, hey, just get ready to react. So I'm the mounted company of my battalion, the heavy weapons company. And we had to leave all of our trucks behind because there was a bit of a stopgap in the outload from Charleston. So we took all of our heavy machine guns, all of our 50 cals, our grenade launchers and all that, and we just hand carried them in on litters. So we had all these guns that weighed a ton, and we didn't have anything to move them with. Oh, and wow. so um, we found a bunch of Afghan Humvees, a couple MRAPs, and a couple Hiluxes. You were scavenging? Yes, ma'am. We okay. took all of them. The Humvees, when we found them, actually, they were filled with weapons. 
machine guns, M4s. They were so full, you couldn't even like get a rucksack in the back seat. So we had to download all that equipment, mount up our machine guns. That way we could fill that mounted role for the battalion. And so we were in the midst of doing that when I got the change of mission again, that like, hey, actually, we do need you in the South. And so I ended up splitting my company off where I took two platoons, went to the South to reinforce uh, one of our sister companies on uh, perimeter security. And then I had sent two other platoons to finish out downloading those trucks, getting our heavy weapons mounted and getting that asset up for the battalion. Now, this was your first deployment. Yes, ma'am. Okay. It wasn't a year long thing and it wasn't, you know, going out to the country and living in a fob. This was a big public mission that was on TV, but we didn't see any of these details. What were your thoughts before you left the United States? Was there a little bit of panic? I mean, Um, what did you say to yourself before you left? At first, honestly, we were too busy to worry. Just getting out the door was a huge logistical problem. Currently, the airfield on Fort Bragg was being resurfaced. And so we had to outload out of Charleston, which for light infantry companies is relatively easy. You just, you know, you get everything together, get on a bus and drive down to Charleston. But for us as the mounted company, we had to drive to Charleston. So we got the alert at about two o'clock in the afternoon. We worked all the way up till we left Bragg at about zero four in the morning. And then we drove till about noon. We got to Charleston. So it was it's a good 40 hours we were awake before we even like started the outload from Charleston itself. So we, we were very busy. Um, I think worth mentioning is that the Army's transitioned its training focused on large-scale ground combat operations. That's what our last training progression was all pointed towards. That's what I've been preparing myself for. And the mission that we found in Afghanistan was about as far from that as you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and so yeah, that sounds like yes, it. Yes, ma'am. I, just, I can't say enough about how stellar the performance was of our junior leaders and paratroopers. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we gave them on the ground, they just had to fight off intent. And they did so with enthusiasm, uh, but also with great discipline. What sort of aircraft did you fly over in? Or what was, C-17s. What was the C-17s? Yeah. C-17s? Okay. Yes, okay. So when that ramp went down, what did you see on the airfield? Was it the chaos we saw on TV? No. What you saw on TV was about eight hours after we landed. When we landed, the sun was coming up and coming after the battalion had landed the night previously. When we landed, the sun was coming up and things were relatively quiet, relatively calm. Yeah. You could hear some sporadic gunfire you know, off the airfield. That calm lasted about two hours. And then everything that you saw on TV happened. And how did your posture change when that chaos started? We immediately sort of fell in on I guess, bolstering security and bolstering the defenses of the airfield. Because, I mean, it's an international airport. It's the same as any other that you've probably ever been to. It's not a military facility in its intent. So there was a lot of, I guess, gaps in the security there that were easily being exploited by a lot of civilians trying to rush the airfield. And in our minds, that leak could easily lead to someone who wishes to do us ill intent also sneaking through. So we immediately kind of went to bolstering our defenses, building obstacles and things of that nature to try and prevent those leaks and control them as best we could, direct all the traffic to the places where we could control it at best, and then just prevent anyone else from you know sneaking through where we didn't have access to or any, any control over. So my platoon was down on the southern end of the airfield and there was a gate there that had been previously been under Afghan military control. And I think literally while we were in the air on our way into Kabul, that gate had fallen and was pretty well abandoned. So that very first night, we moved down to that gate and began sort of building defenses around it, putting up security perimeter and everything there. And then the following morning, we just took anything we could find just to block that gate off as best we can. 
The gate itself had a physical door, but then we used an ambulance and drove it into the back of the gate and just rammed a bunch of really heavy things behind it to try and prevent you it from You do what you have to, yeah. right? <laughs> wow, that sounds really challenging. And I understand there were threats against you really the whole time you were there. How did that play into how you managed the situation and kept everybody together? So down the south where we were, it was very open. Uh, we were right on the inside of the international terminal, and there was a large crowd of people, a couple thousand, that were faring towards the international gate to be processed. And there was no physical barrier to hold them back. So they were physically on a flight line just right along the edge of it. And all that was holding them from rushing was our soldiers interspaced uh, about, I don't know, say 10 meters between, and just shouting and moving and then eventually we were able to get sea wire and some other things but for several hours it was just our personal presence that was holding them back and there were reports of threats in the terminal when those things happened we pulled back a little bit to get into a little better of a security posture using what little vehicles and other things that were on the flight line as cover but generally we had to stay close to the civilians because if we backed off too far then they had free reign and they could overwhelm the flight line again it brings to mind that it's kind of an intimate situation. They're yes. all standing there. They all want to come in and get on the planes. So just from a human standpoint, what was it like, especially for you, Sergeant Brown, because you had been in Afghanistan before and this was just completely different. You were in a position to maybe let them in. I mean, I had a few kind of striking interactions with some of the Afghan civilians there. There was a group of women in particular, I remember, that we were ferrying from one spot over to another terminal so they could be properly processed by the State Department and the Marines that were there. There's a group of women, and I told them, hey, you know, it's time to go. We're, I've got a vehicle for you. Go ahead and get in. And you could just see it in their eyes that there was a lot of fear in there. And they all kind of looked at me. One of them spoke really good English, and she just asked me, you're not taking me back outside, are you? I had to kind of take a step back and just see the desperation in those people. And you know, realize what the situation that they were in. So it was challenging in that regard, but at the same time, trying to balance that with providing security for those people and security for ourselves at the same time is a really difficult balancing act to do. Yeah, just something a little bit unusual, yeah. different than patrolling with your yeah, rifle absolutely. and looking for the Taliban, <laughs> yeah, right? It, it, was a yes, lot, it was a lot more challenging than just keeping everyone away from you as much as you can, and that's the end of it. Yeah. Wow, what an experience. Have you talked to your families about your experience and and what questions have they had? <laughs> well, my dad is a career NCO in the Army. He'd been to Afghanistan several times. So I don't think anyone was probably more nervous than he was just because he could kind of see, see the writing on the wall and just sort of see where this operate could potentially go. So talking to him, I had to give him a full debriefing when I got home. And <laughs> so he wanted, he wanted me to pull up the map and everything and just show me exactly where on the airfield we were at. So... It seemed like everyone back in the States was just extremely fascinated and really captivated by what was going on over there. Yeah, I think people want to hear your stories. What are some of the things that you saw, Captain Hawks, over there that really kind of grabbed you and that stick with you today? So the people in the flight had many issues. You know, obviously they were desperate to get out of country, but some of the ones we didn't expect were they're all out of water, almost entirely. They, almost no one on the flight line had any water or food. Most of them have been out there for a couple of days. And so the environment's actually starting to affect them quite a bit. We had a bunch of people fainting and, you know, issues of that. We had a lot of injured people and we were actually able to buy a good amount of goodwill with our medics, uh, bringing them up to treat people as best we could. Granted, we couldn't expend all of our medical supplies because we need those to treat soldiers in the case that the threats had been realized on that day. It was a weird kind of heartbreaking juxtaposition where like you got people there that need treatment 
We have some of the capability to treat them, but we need to, we also need to hold some of that back for our troops as well. Furthermore, we didn't have enough water for everybody. And so we had to hide it. We'd still bring out water and give it to people individually. But if they saw like a whole case of water, the crowd would get really belligerent and actually start to rush soldiers. So we had to keep it behind our vehicles and we try and give it out in a, like a targeted fashion generally to you know women with kids. And there were actually issues within the crowd where we'd give a bottle of water to you know, a woman for her child and the crowd would try and take it from her. So there were more than a few instances where paratroopers where we'd stop them. Like, hey, this is hard to watch. This is for the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Back off. But then there were other people in the crowd that were just as normal as you or me. And they were unbelievably helpful. It was an odd juxtaposition at the time. But we tried to leverage them as best we could to explain to the crowd because they were all trying to rush the airfield. They're like, hey, you want to get out of here. I want you to get out of here. But until you get off the flight line, you can't land any planes. And so we must have that conversation two, 300 times that afternoon of just trying to explain that, like, hey, yes, I understand. One, I don't have the, you know, the authority to process your paperwork. Two, until you get off this flight line, like, no planes are coming. And for a while there, we had things relatively calm. And then some other actors came onto the airfield later on in the day and fired some rounds in the air and the, the crowd just went. Were you, went all, were you all worried at all that the situation would escalate and that you would be yes, in ma'am. a completely different situation? I mean, how real did that feel? In the so air? when when that individual was shooting in the air behind the crowd, we had pulled a single strand of concertina wire up. They, they jumped the wire and completely overran my company. And so we were like all in, in and amongst the crowd. So we we're just pulling individuals and trying to group them together and conduct some sort of controlled and withdrawal across the airfield. My RTO had jumped in a truck to drive one of our Max Pros and I didn't realize it. I just knew that I turned around and he wasn't there. And so, yeah, in, in that moment, I was terrified that he had gotten grabbed. That was the one thing I was most worried about because we had no, like very limited security, just honestly in you know, battle buddy teams in the crowd that someone would get grabbed because at this point, we weren't quite sure what the threat was looking like on the airfield at that point and what our relationship was going to be with other Afghan elements on the ground. And so I remember running through the crowd looking for him, like screaming his name when we finally found him in the truck, got the rest of our element together, and we retrograded across the field. But at that point, it was very... It's a little hairy. Yes, ma'am. Very, very stressful. Very hairy. Definitely not something we trained for. But once again, junior leaders took it upon themselves to collect up members of the company together into small groups and then from there build bigger groups that way we could finally consolidate and get accountability. Wow. How helpful was it to see your division commander and your command sergeant major coming around? What did that add to your ability to perform your mission? It was good to have him on the ground leading all those different efforts. So I think one of the issues we ran into when we first got there was that you had several different chains of command with several different units all trying to help but not necessarily all doing the same thing. But then these units were all next to each other. I mean, from where I was on the airfield, we had a platoon of Marines, we had a company from 1504, and we had a company from 10th Mountain. So like three distinct chains of command there. And so they'd be like, hey, we're pulling back to this you know, phase line. Well, that's that's not what I'm tracking. So there's this issues in terrain management, but just also just settled. like, hey, like, what are we doing? Like if, yeah. if I'm holding the line here and you back up a couple hundred meters, now my position isn't tenable. And so it was, it was good having the CG there, like, hey, this is what we're doing to consolidate all those efforts into one overarching mission. Okay. Yeah, when we arrived, it was difficult to really tell. I mean, there's just so many. There's coalition forces there. There's, you know, the Army's there. The Marines are there. You've got the Turkish military there. There's British military there. There's a lot of different 
chains of command running around and you kind of had to ask like who's really running this thing who's the head shed <laughs> yeah. right now important um, question yeah. Yeah. yes fair enough. Um, but so, it sorted itself out pretty well yeah when general donahue short. came and i mean we even I, I think i first heard about it on the news that he was going to be the ground force commander <laughs> so he showed up and it definitely helped it provided continuity between everyone that everyone sort of started speaking the same language and sort of working towards the same ends now did you have an interpreter helping you talk to the Afghans? <laughs> no, um, no, I also fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, it was really interesting. A lot of the Afghans that I encountered had English speaking members of their family with them. A lot of them had US passports, things like that. I remember there was a kid, he was probably, he was eight or nine years old, maybe just barely older than my own son is. He spoke phenomenal English. He was my interpreter. He talked to his family for me. We got speaking the same language, but here I am using a kid who's barely out of elementary school <laughs> as my interpreter. And he, I asked him where he's from, where he learned English. He's like, yeah, I grew up in Dallas, man. Like, that's, that's where <laughs> Okay, I'm from. there you go. I just happened to end up in Afghanistan in August of 2021. So now that you've had some time to reflect on it, I mean, these are great details from when you were there. But is there anything you would have done differently or could have done differently? Did it go quickly? What are your reflections on this important mission? Did it feel important? Yeah, I mean, you could kind of feel it in the air that this was just something that was going to be historic. And the events that took place for those two weeks were either going to be talked about in a negative fashion for years to come, or, you know, it could be looked at as a, a highly successful mission, something that other people could model similar operations off of. You could kind of feel the pressure to do the job well and make sure that the legacy you left behind there was as best you could possibly make it. And in your case, with your prior deployment to Afghanistan and two deployments to Iraq, was it weird? Did you have any opportunity to coordinate or do anything with the Taliban guys that were there at the airport? I mean, did you have any interaction with them? Uh, not directly. There was a certain point where the Taliban had kind of taken a harder stance on their external security of the perimeter. They're a few dozen yards away from me, just kind of standing out there patrolling, sort of like we used to do. So, you know, it's strange kind of seeing this man in the face that eight or nine years ago, I, I actively hunted him every single day. <laughs> Wow. Um, so it was kind of a difficult thing to come to terms with. But looking back on it, you know, their position in that entire operation probably made it as successful as it was. Suffice it to say, the Taliban's security in that entire operation definitely helped get more Americans out and get us out safer, probably. Okay. What will you tell your grandchildren about this mission? Whew. We got a lot of people out. I think that's the simplest way to put it. Feels good? Felt really good, especially working at the Western Gate, closely coordinated with the State Department, pulling out a lot of American citizens. I think that we actually made an effort to cycle paratroopers through that gate just to see that, like, hey, like, I know the first day in the airfield was rough. We didn't have the capability to process those people, and most of them we just had to push back out to get the airfield open again. But we'd cycle them up to uh, the West Gate to see, like, hey, these are the American citizens that you're saving. And I think that did a lot of good for the paratroopers just to see that, like, hey, you accomplished the mission that we came here for. I'll probably tell them how nice a Mercedes G-Wagon is to drive around. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been some funny moments. I mean, you can always oh count gosh, on a yeah, paratrooper so. to have a funny thing to say. But yeah, there were a lot. I think there was an ongoing competition to see who could hotwire the most outlandish thing. <laughs> and are you staying in touch with any of the Afghans or any of the people that, that you helped out? No, you just did your job and went home. Yeah, we weren't exchanging phone numbers or anything <laughs> over there. Okay. Um, it was a lot about just sort of efficiency, just trying to move as many people as quickly as we could. 
Okay. You know, kind of had this clock ticking in the background that you just had to Very constantly so. driving towards. Yeah. Especially yeah. later on in the operation, it was like a constant look at the watch saying, okay, we've got a couple of days left. Okay, we've got a day left. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much Absolutely. for telling us your stories and sharing these moments with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, man. Thank you for joining us for part two of this exclusive three-part special edition of Army Matters. In the final episode, Staff Sergeant Austin Buchanan and Sergeant Jacob Black from the 2nd Battalion, 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment will provide their perspective on this historic and final mission in Afghanistan. That episode will be available at ausa.org slash podcast on December 15th. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters Podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters Podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army day. Hua.